0: Welcome, everybody, to the Rabbit Trails podcast in 2021. A Happy fantastic New year. year. Happy New Year. It is Epiphany tomorrow, Garrick.
1: Yeah, we're a big, a big, big holiday in Spain. We're having a, a well, kind of a modest parade tonight, but uh, Epiphany is a big, it's a big deal. So we're we're excited. Nice. Yes.
0: Uh, Epiphany is a little bit bigger than, uh, than Christmas in Spain, is
1: it not? It's pretty big. Uh, that's when kids get their gifts uh, in yeah. Spain. So it's... So, do you make your kids hold out? No, we do a little bit of Christmas, and then we do something small for Epiphany. Okay, so they still get something. Well,
0: so, so speaking of segues, which no one was speaking of, uh, <laughs> our guest today is Stefan Pass, who is a theologian <laughs> in the Netherlands. And I know that the Nether. Welcome, Stefan, to the Rabbit Trails yeah. Podcast. Uh, the Netherlands celebrates. Um, uh, is it uh, Santa Claus Day? Yeah, you're culturally savvy yeah in in, uh, the, in in early december is it not
2: yeah f- five uh, the 5th of december yes yeah. uh, so is that class. when
0: you give gifts to your children or do you hold yes. d-
2: d- okay oh yeah also with christmas but but that's actually a, a newer development yeah innovation coming from the anglo-saxon world mm-hmm. but okay. uh, originally uh it's class, uh, 5th of december in, in okay. the netherlands and in belgium
0: hmm. yeah. long ago in a former life i lived in central asia and um the uh, i don't know if it was the russian influence or whatever but uh, central asian muslims have a uh, father father christmas that they celebrate <laughs> with yeah. every year yeah. and uh, uh kor bobo is what they called him uh Asia, it's christmas.
2: all over the world also in the yeah. muslim world. it's, it's uh, yeah
0: it's still still a big deal uh, so we do. Well, Stefan, we're, we're excited that you were able to join us today. Uh, listeners of the rabbit trails podcast will recognize uh, Stefan's name. We have referenced a lot of your works uh, pretty often. So it's a huge honor to be able to chat with you a little bit more and explore the intersection of life, faith and missions uh, together with you. So thanks for thanks for joining us. Yeah, there's one line. Um, so I I thought that it would be fun to start out our conversation by um, doing something that I'm sure is every author's um, dream come true. Uh, someone, maybe I'm, I'm being somewhat sarcastic with this, uh, reading, reading, I don't know if it is or not. I'm not an author. You're um, reading, uh, reading back to you some, some, some of your own book. Uh, Because I found it incredibly impactful. uh, And then as our launching point into into where we'll talk today, it comes out of your book, uh, Pilgrims and Priests. um, And it's in the very first part of it describing your own journey as a church planter in Amsterdam. and as I read it, as a missionary in Sweden, I could have taken out all the words where you were referencing geography and implanted my geography with it, and it would still make sense because it parallels my a lot of my own journey. Huh. Um, so here is it, here's, it said, here, here's what it says. Despite yourself, you begin to realize how completely self-evident it is for the vast majority in Amsterdam to live without God or the church. In this profoundly secularized environment, people do not even bother to be atheists. God is not interesting enough for one to have an opinion about Him. Scholars of religion call this attitude apatheism. Specifically for someone with a missionary heart, this is a nagging realization. It undermines deep assumptions that you hardly ever thought about. People who are inspired by mission often think as entrepreneurs, at least in my experience. They believe that there is a real need for God and Jesus out there, but that the church does not respond to this need because of its closeness. They assert that we are now live in a post-Christendom world and that people are therefore finally free to choose their own religion, providing wonderful opportunities for missionary pioneers to play the market. The church could do better and more people would come come to the faith if only the church weren't so afraid to renew itself too often the church leans back in fear or arrogance. People can come to us as long as they adapt to our routines. As a matter of fact, I do believe that many churches could do better, but I also know that this is not the whole problem. Such revivalistic assumptions make sense in a culture of nominal Christianity or in religious parts of the world. But deep secularization means that mission work is not just a matter of a renewed or refreshed supply. You also face a decreasing demand, regardless of how in- in, inventively or creatively you wrap it, there are many people who simply do not find the product all that interesting. My impression is that mission-minded people often do not really dwell on this. But in Amsterdam, this reality will hit you inevitably. We had come to Amsterdam to contribute to mission in that city to try to plant new churches. And while we did that, I soon noticed that all dreams about mass conversions were based on thin air. While Christianity certainly continues to prove itself as a vital option to some people sometimes with high profile conversion stories by leading authors and thinkers these stories are a far cry from a so-called people movement rather than a continuing stream of small of we saw small drops here and there beautiful drops to be sure i entered that typical faith crisis that comes with a radical change of life only if you become a real minority will you find out how much your faith is intertwined with your social context how much it depends on plausibility structures that affirm this faith you ask yourself the question, what it actually means to trust in God, to believe in Jesus and his kingdom, when virtually nobody shares this faith or is even vaguely interested in it. You start to wonder whether it is really worth your time to invest in so much, so much in one seeker who knocks on the front door while so many others leave through the back door. These questions hit you with double strength when you notice that people can be really happy without religion and that they do not need God either to care deeply about their fellow humans or to give to charity. In most of them, you do not find the sense of emptiness or the vague sense of guilt that can be found among non-believers or ex-churchgoers in more religious areas. In Amsterdam, faith has nothing to do with doing the decent thing or following tradition. If you want to go to religion, you are absolutely free to do as you like. But it is purely a matter of individual appeal and this appears to happen only to a few a long introduction to ask a simple question um that sets up the stage a little bit for your journey could you could you give us maybe even context of that or background to that of your journey into being a church planter in uh amsterdam some of that crisis of faith and even even these statements in that
2: yeah well um I've been a church planter since the early 1990s, when we were invited to, to plant a church in uh, another area of the country where we, where we lived back then, which was a completely different context, more Bible Belt area. And the group of people we were ministering to uh, were usually, let's say, people who were on the brink of church life or just outside of it, due to all sorts of issues could not be involved in church, psychiatric problems, uh, prison, prison backgrounds, uh, Uh, poverty, whatever. So, um, and then when we moved to Amsterdam in 2005, we were invited by friends to help planting a church there. Uh, We met a completely different crowd, um, a very interesting, challenging crowd. Uh, I I really love these people. Uh, Used the more, let's say, highly educated young professionals um, in the metropolitan area. And um, um, much deeper secularized, uh, less needy uh, less dependent uh, quite happy as long as life goes well it's a bit different now so i would say during the pandemic and many people have lost their jobs and so on but but back then certainly um, so yeah well like i in, in the passage you just read i think um, it makes clear that embarking on such a thing as church planting in a very challenging context uh, also invites you to reflect on your faith on your theology on your let's say operant models of mission Um, so one of the i think the models or paradigms we worked with at least i worked with intuitively maybe not 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 so much reflectively or, or theologically but intuitively was let's say this market paradigm the idea that if the church does better we will attract more people and the fact that we the reason that we lost This specific group as a church is because the church did not innovate enough or did not package uh its its supply or its offer in in uh in in sufficiently attractive terms so um uh, and this is something when when you find out that secularization is a different thing it's it's deeper than that Um, and it's partly also i think Tracing, you can trace it back partly to Christian intuitions, even. well that's a very complicated story, maybe we shouldn't go into that now. But so, uh, oh, do it. Part, well, it's also part of who <laughs> you are. I mean, uh, uh, back in the 60s and 70s, a lot of books appeared that um, argued that uh, modern secularisation in the West is partly, a, to a large extent, a part a fruit of Christian tradition and a fruit of Christian mission. Even uh, if you if you teach people to so to speak, take responsibility for their own lives, to, to, to stand before God as individuals, uh, to think their way through certain issues of faith and so on, then you will also run the risk that <laughs> that they secularize that as well. Mm. Okay, um, Christianity has made me so strong and independent that in the end, I can do this without God.
1: Yeah.
2: Mm. Um, so, well, anyway, that's a long story. Yeah. But coming back to myself and to our own journey, so to speak, um, what I found is that uh, doing church planting as a theologian, for myself, speaking for myself, is, is a, a wonderful environment to, to reflect on th- uh, what it means to do mission uh, in different contexts. I mean, also um, in, in the book, I explained that mission and speaking about mission is a, is a tradition, a uh, sort of journey of the church through different ages and cultures. And now we've, we've entered a new culture, basically, one that we are not really familiar with. Mm-hmm. And we're working with a lot of models and ideas and paradigms, assumptions from age gone past that are behind us, we, uh, revivalistic assumptions often.
0: When you, when you say intuitively, mm-hmm. you had the idea that if we package it right, uh, I don't know if that's exactly how you phrase it, but if we if we're doing the right things, we'll see the 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 trajectory will be up and up and forward. We'll grow, um, yeah. We'll grow. Uh, church church growth model might be a way way to say it, although church growth model does does tend to put a a sense of uh, maybe maybe too specifically, I don't know the sense of uh, the the church out of Chicago, which I'm totally. Just Blue Creek. Creek. Thank you. Okay. Blue Creek model. And and that's not, it's it's bigger than that. Um, but anyway, so all that being is just growth. That Look, the gospel's effective. If we're sharing the gospel, people respond, uh, therefore we'll see thing. But why is that intuitive? Or why was that intuitive for you? Good
2: question. Um, that's a very difficult question to answer, maybe partly because I'm a Western Christian used to a certain level of comfort. And and used to measure success in terms of numbers, statistics, growth, rather than say quality of life or suffering or whatever. Um, uh, For example, what I find is that many Western Christians, including myself, tended to derive their models or best practices of mission from areas in the world where the church is growing, like China. Or sub-Saharan Africa, rather than, say, Morocco, or the Middle East, where the church is suffering <laughs> and, and, and and in deep problems. Um, uh, like a, a, an Indonesian pastor once told me, he said, "Well, you, you're always talking, you're in the West about the church being a light to the world. So maybe we are, but it's it's in Indonesia, it's a tea light. Mm. And what he meant was this very small candle that warms up." A cup of tea or, or, or the pop of the teapot um so it said yeah it's light but it's a very small one uh, and in a very big world so that, those kinds of experiences or practices that are rooted in much more precarious situations uh, and where the church has struggled to survive or to witness in conditions that are much more difficult and and less growth inducive so to speak um uh, are much less explored mm. uh, when it comes to mission. So uh, one of the, the the struggles I had was um, what does it mean to be church, to do mission in a context like that? Not just for a year or five years, but for centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something, I, I'm, we're still at the very beginning of that in the West, I would say. And I'm not s- certain. I mean, the West is a unique area the post-christian west so i'm not saying that we will replicate all these experiences from let's say the church in the middle east or where, where christianity was wiped away uh, in the eighth century uh, by and large um but um well there may there may be similarities maybe even more than with let's say china or sub-saharan africa who knows uh, at the very least this is also part of the world church we should learn from that mm-hmm. and we should not uh, build our templates or our examples just on mass movements and, and great success and growing churches, uh, but also think of of what does it mean to have to be successful in a context where the church is struggling, but still witnessing for centuries, mm. where it's, a, where it's a, a small minority and even oppressed sometimes. Anyway,
0: yeah. faithfulness in that scenario that yeah. you just outlined seems to be the seems to be the key, not. Not numbers, but but faithfulness.
2: Yeah, without making it to, into a new model. I'm quite wary of, of talking about models and blueprints. Mm-hmm. But um the, the point is, I think to to learn to understand our place within the world church as a in a as, as living in a very unique context, the post Christian West, um, um where we are still trying to find our bearings. I mean, we did we haven't found a silver bullet yet, <laughs> if we ever will. Um, but at le- at the very least, um, to understand ourselves as a as a one voice in this huge co- choir of the world church, mm-hmm. uh, trying to learn a new song.
1: That I think that's it's something uh, a, a, an article you wrote way way back maybe uh, that that kind of flipped a penny for me when I was doing some some research was uh, that we I don't maybe we've never been in a post Christian post christendom context oh. as a church yet it's, it's totally new. And I think that's for our listeners something important to hear because we all, we're all having you know as we talk to our other friends out there our other uh, you know coworkers they're all having this dissonance as they come to Europe or even work in some parts of the United States and Canada of this just feels it's not this, the things we want to see happen are not happening and they're not the things we are maybe told or things we even believe in that can work don't don't work yeah. Um, so in that, there in your book, you make some great ideas uh, or some some um, ideas about shifts we need to make in our missiology and our theology. What what do you think are uh, are are some of the big big shifts that we need to start to rethink and re reimagine uh, ourselves in this new world yeah. um, that you're you're getting at here?
2: Well, yeah, like I said, like you said, I, I I write about this quite a lot. So let me just mention two things in the context of this podcast. Uh, The first is, I think, a shift from, let's say, revivalism to mission. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Most, if not all, of our concepts of evangelism and mission are rooted in revivalistic movements of the late 18th century evangelicalism. Um, And still, I think, uh, most of uh, um, at least a lot of our mission evangelism is rooted in the assumption that uh, let's say, deep inside people are really religious but they don't know it yet so we need to awaken them uh, that is actually the assumption uh, that also uh, many africans coming to europe to do mission carry in their awesome so to speak uh, europe is essentially a christian continent that should be revived to its christian roots and so on but what if it is not it may have never been a christian continent but even if it was back then it's not anymore it's post-christian that doesn't mean pre-christian doesn't mean pagan in the sense of, of pre-christian pre- pre-christian paganism i mean there's a lot of uh, we still celebrate sunday we still have christian holidays uh, there are certain laws certain sentiments uh, human rights there's a there's a lot of vestiges of, of, of christianity and christendom uh, going around there and and if you look at late Christ, late modern spiritualities then i'd say uh there's a lot of christian residue there so it's not pagan but it's not christian anymore and and what what mission is in opposition to 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 revivalism is to learn to understand that this is not a continent that can be revived in a sense there's not Mm -hmm. uh, you can only revive something if there is still some life there that is needs to be uh, revived so Um, You need to start all over again uh, to do mission, a very pioneer kind of mission, to to find new ways to do this in a very new culture. And what we can learn from the past is that it can take decades, if not centuries, to learn these lessons. Uh, Decades, generations of loyal, faithful witness, often with very small fruit uh, before the gospel breaks through or or at least strikes some root in them. So, So that's what we've seen in virtually every continent in mm-hmm. the past you so need a lot of patience a lot of experiment a lot of hard work and faithfulness so that's one I think one shift we need to make from from revivalism to mission and the other might be a do you luck.
0: do you think that that shift is even do you think it's possible so much of our I, I, i'm not i'm not saying i i agree with this but i get i get worried sometimes that not worried i don't know what the right word is but I, we both swim in a, Garrick and I swim in an in a organization and a culture in which deeply is, is deeply rooted in revivalistic thinking. Uh, but also, gosh, the churches that I am a part of within the Swedish context that I am very revivalist. Uh, so much of the literature that comes out is revivalist in its thinking. Yeah. Um, how, how does one, how does one begin Not combating, but how does one begin to just remain faithful in in that setting when so much of, uh, to be honest, to show up to any meeting with people who want to see Jesus lifted high often means that you feel lonely if you think this way. Does that make sense? Like you feel like a bad Christian in some sense, oftentimes.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What can I say? Yeah, yeah, to, yeah I, I suppose you're right. that's difficult. that's what pioneering means It's always difficult. If, yeah. if everyone did it, it wasn't pioneering. Yeah. So um, to next, if someone needs to do the first steps, take the first steps. yeah, um, yeah you'll get a lot of flack for that but but um, I, that's why I think it's important that you have channels like this one where you can find each other and talk to each mm. other, support mm. each other. But um, again, what you can learn from the past, and that's why I challenge and and, and encourage all my students to read a lot of mission history. What you can learn from the past for missionaries going out to, let's say, countries like China or India with uh, uh, elites who were not steeped in Christianity, who were quite critical of Christianity, and who didn't need Christianity because they were quite happy as they were. Thank you. Um, Missionaries trying to find their ways in cultures like that uh, i think you can learn a lot from from, from those people mm. creativity uh, people like um stanley jones for example in india the way he tried to f- feel his way around creatively uh theologically uh, being a faithful witness making friends uh is i think quite exemplary I'm, I'm not sure whether he scored a lot of church growth so to speak mm-hmm. um, but uh he did he did very good work there mm. so yeah you need this well you're a pioneer so yeah. Uh, that's uh, yeah that's what it means i'm supposed to be the first to do something mm. uh, rather than the, the follow-up generation um but okay but, but you, you're asking about shifts so the yeah. other sh- shift maybe even more important i think where a lot of creativity can come from is a theological shift or a spiritual shift and that is um, the question i also discuss in the book can we see god in all this that's basically mm. a very simple question. Mm-hmm. Uh, to frame it differently, um, how is God involved in the secularization of our cultures? Mm. What I think spiritually on a a very deep level is that a lot of Christians, good-willing, evangelical, missionary-minded Christians, deep down are quite desperate about this. They think that uh, secularization is almost by definition something that happens outside of God, that God cannot have anything to do with because it's against God. How can God ever be in a process that discourages people to go to church, to to believe in him, and so on and so forth? Um, So I think deep down, many evangelicals work with a sort of split spirituality that God is always on the side of growth and of of full churches and of enthusiastic believers, and not on the side of, let's say, where where you experience despair and the loss and the the sadness of, of seeing so many people leave or being indifferent. But what we I think we can learn from, and that's what I try to explore in the book, for example, the narratives and the stories of the exile uh, in the Old Testament, is that God is in processes like these. And so I think theological creativity and missional creativity start, may, may start with this question. Can I think my, my way through, brain my way through these questions? God, how are you involved? In the secularization of our culture. Did you leave us here? Did you abandon us here? Or are you with us? And, and and are you going through this with us? And that's what you can see in the in the in the in the exile of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, it was God who led them into exile, basically. Mm. And um, the the people of Israel had to discover certain things spiritually spiritually, theologically, things about God that they could only discover because they were up, became uprooted and, and dispersed in and, the and, and diaspora. Uh, for example, that God is greater than, than the nation, greater than their culture, greater than their institutions, and that God can encounter you in surprising ways through uh, those who are outside the people of God. Uh, for example, uh, um, think of King Cyrus, Chorus, uh, depends on your translation. Um, uh, think of the... The court officials that Daniel and his friends meet in, in the in the uh, in, in the Nebuchadnezzar's court, uh, the the one, what's his name again, uh, in Daniel chapter one, the guy who helps them to eat the food they, um, yeah. they want to eat, they need to eat. I, I forgot his name. He, sh- he should be mentioned with honor because he he helped the people of God to survive. Because, but he was not my point is this. This guy was not a Jew. He was not a believer. Um, he was a friendly face. In, in a world that was not really friendly to the people of god so um i think the point i'm making here is that through this experience of exile of feeling abandoned of not having a lot of success and so uh, important lessons can be learned and faith is formed mm-hmm. uh, in situations like this so if you, if you read the book of isaiah the second part what, what, what Old Testament scholars usually call the the, the, the Deuteronomy Isaiah or Second Isaiah, uh, the prophet who prophesied in in the exile. So chapters 40, 40 and further. That's where you can see that a prophet who lives in exile, has a small minority, not very successful, discovers great things about God, that he indeed is the God of, of of all the world, of the whole world. And, and I think, to be honest, if you look back on the on the high tide of Christendom which is not so far behind us actually in the Netherlands, I would say even in the 1950s you would have still a very strong Christendom situation the United States, maybe maybe even now in some areas, Um, in Sweden probably somewhat further back, but but the point is um, in those situations Christians may be too triumphant, maybe too Mm. inclined to connect God almost self-evidently with the kind of arrangements of institutions and power they have have established and without really really wanting it maybe. It's it's usually an intuitive thing, a thing that's just part of us. Mm -hmm. We do it unthinkingly. Uh, And one of the reasons why post-Christendom or exile is so painful is that that you're sort of ripped apart. Um, It's a very painful surgery (laughs) in a way, Mm -hmm. that all these elements are cut away from you, yeah.
0: But that's that's a, in large measure, what you're getting out there. What it what it means to really find God and know Him from the from the minority standpoint. I remember yes. when uh, same-sex marriage was passed in the United States. Um, I remember thinking, well, if the church is ready, welcome to its best days, because we've just found ourselves in the minority position, and if if we're if we're willing to accept. That this is the case, then we're willing to know God in different ways, and I, I don't, I don't think it's gone so well for the church in America since then. But, but uh, we—that's probably for a different podcast. Um, Well,
2: yeah, just one take on that. I think uh, what you can see, not just in America, but but until recently and maybe still in the Netherlands as well, um, is is this whole culture wars paradigm, Mm -hmm. yeah, which I think is deeply connected with the Christian mindset. The idea yeah. that it somehow, somewhere, the Christians need to save culture and need to keep their grip on it, and that will not work—I can tell you. Yeah.
0: No, it—it—it it, it seems to be the. Some of my most joyous days as a missionary were, were in places like North Africa and Central yeah. Asia, where, I never assumed that I needed to save anything. Exactly. I just needed to live Jesus.
2: Yep.
0: And, and there was there was beauty in that. Now I will say it was very it was very difficult. We even had I mean there were government informants in an underground church, and I mean there was there was difficult things that sure. happened. So it wasn't easy. But there was a depth of relationship with each other and community with the Lord and creativity, um, certainly. So I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, that's,
2: that's one of the experiences I had in Amsterdam, as I explained in the book. Um, yeah, it's not always easy, but I think somewhere in the book I write, I don't want to, to raise the impression that it is all despair or that it's a very, that it is all sort of misery to live in a post-Christian culture, on the contrary, it's also very relaxing. Uh, it takes away a lot of, let's say, secondary issues uh, that are part of a culture war. There are no Christian schools, there are no Christian politics, all these issues that Christians are concerned about in, in the more Christian parts of the country uh, or in the Christian parts of the world. Uh, there's nothing to keep nothing to control it's mm-hmm. out of your control others are calling the shots not christians yeah. so you can concentrate mm-hmm. on basic very basic witness yeah. Yeah.
1: We've, we've seen something interesting, very interesting and you you mentioned it um in your book bu- in your book as well about the ability for now there's a greater unity as as mm-hmm. everyone kind of gets pushed into this little camp in my uh, case, uh, yeah yeah, you start seeing that. In the, we, you know, we've seen that in Spain, where, yeah, uh, where the Catholic Church, where maybe 20 years ago, and and certainly 100 years ago, for Protestants and Catholics to come together and and serve together or do something together would have would have been, I mean, people would get killed for that. But but now uh, that we have Catholic organizations and priests coming to us and hey help us, can you help us with this and vice versa and there's there's this openness that has never existed I, I think that's a very interesting thing also about the situation we're in uh this ability to to really identify who who is really behind uh you know mission for for, for the cause of christ
2: yeah that's a, wonder, that's a wonderful remark thank you for that yeah so one of the things you can see i'm, I'm not i'm not let's say, a Christendom critic per se. I mean, what's good mm-hmm. in it as well? It's, it's, I, don't, yeah. I don't think it makes much sense to just write off 1,000 to 1,500 years of history. That's stupid. That's yeah. But um, one of the almost demonic dimensions of Christendom was this horrible spits in the body of Christ. Yeah. Um, we have become much too used to that. It's become a routine in, Christ, in Christian life and in ecclesial life. And if one of the effects of post Christendom is um, that Christians from different denominations and churches find each other again and are rebuilding the body of Christ, so to speak, or re- reformed into, into the body of Christ, that would be great. Um, yeah, so thank you for that.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. It's interesting what happens when you, the, the process of exile, as you've mentioned. Um, when when you're torn from your institutions, uh, would you say that, or when you're torn from your culture, does it have a revealing effect on what our idols are, what we're really worshiping?
2: Um, yeah, ma- yeah, maybe. Um, I think in general, it's easier to see idols when you don't have them anymore. <laughs> uh, the idols of the past are always easier yeah. to discern than, than the idols that you have now. Yeah. Um, so I would be careful. I mean, this shouldn't be shouldn't become a sort of um, self congratulating story. We have left behind Christendom and see see us. We we really know how it works. Christianity. Um, I think we're in different, probably in different idolatries that are and are hopefully our grandchildren will be able to. The same. But yeah, to an extent, it's true, I think, I mean, the whole addiction to power and the idea that, that, that mission sort of implicates the power to control society mm-hmm. um, or that mission models are almost always predicated on ideas of a sort of uh, Christianized social order as a sort of end result of, of, of mission. We find it very, very difficult to think about mission without having in view sort of transformed society, so to speak. Um, even when I read when I through the work, for example, of a scholar that I really respect, like Tom Wright, for example, but there are others as well who talk about the transformation ideals, uh, they always leave a bit into vagueness what they mean with a transformed society. And I think that's very mm-hmm. wise, because immediately Christendom bells start to ring. Uh, we had a Christianized social order once and see what it brought us. Um, so uh, I mean uh, uh, that's a very mixed blessing, and and it always raises the issue of power. For example, what what are you doing with those people who will not conform to this new social mm-hmm. order, uh, the minorities that are from different religions, or Muslims or atheists or whatever? So so um, I'm not I'm not sure whether mission um, in I mean mission ch- changes people so. It will also change social orders, no doubt about that. But to the, it, I'm, just, I'm wondering: is, is is the purpose of mission really a changed society, a transformed society according to our ideals? I'm, I'm even doubting that. Actually, I think mm-hmm. it's much more a matter of establishing signs of the kingdom and 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 <laughs> witnesses to the kingdom, probably often temporary, uh, rather than building a new society or stuff like that. I think we should leave that to God.
0: wait that that right there i I love that idea because that to me one of the one of the questions that comes up when when we talk about these things is okay well then what should we measure right so you've got you know how are how do we measure success or effectiveness or whatever and it seems to me that at least that, that helps me relax because the only measurement that I have is just remain faithful to this Jesus guy <laughs> who who's a pretty big deal. That that it, at least is, is how I, at the end, uh, when I have, when I've had my own crisis of thinking here in Sweden, um, I often refer to it as the beating of my head against the Swedish wall for a decade uh, before I was, before I finally realized maybe God hasn't called me to beat my head against this wall. Hmm. Maybe, maybe he's just, Called me to be in the room, um, and uh, th- there's something freeing in that. But from your perspective, and I think this is what I was getting at a, li- a little bit with the idols comment. For for me in this process, um, I I worship results. So that was an idol I had. When that got stripped away in my own life, when I got called to the exile of, of of quote unquote results, I began to see. Oh, I'm I'm worshiping a God who who. Gives me things for what I do for him, not for who he is, and so that—that's a little bit of what I mean. But what do you think of, what what should we be measuring if this is the case? Yeah. Or if, sh- if, should we if, should we
1: measure or should we be measuring? <laughs> so
0: if we're called if we're called to bring signs of the kingdom, and some of them are temporary. Yeah. Um, yeah. If we're if we're called to try to maybe get a little bit of growth in the Arctic tundra, not a not a tropical uh, yeah. rainforest. What should we be measuring, or should we be measuring?
2: thank you about the image, by the way. It's a very beautiful metaphor. Yeah, I I got it from you. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) Um, Okay. Um, What should we... Well, um, I think this depends in the end on um, your view of salvation, your theology of salvation. What do you think God is out to do in the world? Mm -hmm. So, um, to cut a long story short, uh, personally, I would say, I think we do the most justice to the history of to early Christianity, the New Testament, to the history of mission, if we would say that mission or the building of God's kingdom or whatever you call it, God's mission is, in the end, uh, it's about community. I think reconciliation. I would say, when I envision the kingdom of God, the eschatological kingdom of God, I envision the multitudes together, uh, a mass of people, a multitude of people from all nations and, and cultures and so on. Now. Um, this is an eschatological idea. I'm not saying that we were building that. But if you built signs of the kingdom or foretastes of the kingdom or whatever you, you call it, then I think the question should always be, how does this serve real deep community? Now, mm. this sounds easy, but it is not. <laughs> because if you look at um, all, the, all the, the gaps and rifts within humanity, between human beings, uh, think of think of issues like how can victims and perpetrators ever live together in one community what does mm-hmm. this mean for for forgiveness for example how can idealists and cynics ever live together people from different races um, uh, former slaves and former slave traders um, and so on so men and women um, so I think this focus on on reconciled community, so to speak, as the, the kingdom of God, brings into focus all the questions that develop from the cross and from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I think. Um, so so um, but part of the problems that have plagued the Christian community in the 1970s and 80s is that the, the kingdom um, advocates, so to speak, and the conversion advocates drifted apart. Mm. so one, the, the some the, the one group was focused on sort of social ideals and, and, and changing society and building the kingdom and the others on personal individual conversion and and, mm. and getting into heaven after your death and so on um mm. now i think on a deep level these two belong together and i yeah. think when we focus on on the impossible because it is impossible the impossible ideal of yeah. of, of reconciled community then immediately all the questions pop up but well, how can this ever happen without knowing that you're really deeply loved that you're forgiven that you need forgiveness that you need to forgive others um, that we need humility uh, kindness uh, well all all, all all the issues actually that the Apostle Paul writes about when he writes to his communities to his churches um, what does this mean for for men women relationships what does it mean for, for, for sexuality uh, um, all, so all these issues that sort of drive people apart from each other Uh, i think so so when church planters or whatever you call yourself a missionary pioneer or just a missionary or a pastor i think um uh, should focus on this is what does it mean in my particular context with the particular questions that that pop up here and the histories that are behind us here what does it mean to, to build community here what kind of questions in terms of reconciliation forgiveness love uh, what kind of practices need, do, do we need to develop? Uh, a good friend of mine who was a church planter, uh, basically the first year in his church planting career, he did not not much else than washing people's feet. <laughs> <laughs> of awkward I mean, uh, some, some, sometimes. But he said, well, if it's not good for the people, it's good for me. Mm. And humility, he said, uh, mm. which an important thing for him to learn. Now, um, it, all, all, it also produced all sorts of interesting conversations, but that's a different story. Mm. Uh, so, so, the, the practices that you find in the new testament the meals uh, the communion uh, meals uh, the um, uh, well the washing of each other's feet and so so all these all these issues i think come into focus when we think what what keeps this together well that's the reconciled humanity mm-hmm. um so that for me so that would be probably the egg that i would put in the basket when it comes to theology and salvation so if you ask me can you measure this? Well, to an extent, at least you can find things that you can worship God for. You can find things that you can thank God for, I would say. Things that feed, uh, that, that, that foster your, your gratitude, uh, your sense of, of, of gratitude of being involved in such a plan, something like that. And, and also, I think, but some, that's a thought I'm just developing and, and, and still thinking about, It might also be that in a post-Christian society that is increasingly plagued by all sorts of polarization, this is also something that that sort of resonates with the desire of the nations. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying that this will be, let's say, uh, the silver bullet that will flock people into the church again. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is I think you'll find a lot of people outside the church um, who may never become Christians, but you can see the sense in a project like this. But yeah, this is worthwhile to, to, to invest your life in. Um, I, I'm not sure that I will do it myself, but I'm, at least I'm glad that these crazy Christians do it.
0: Yeah, like that. Which, which today in, in, in Western cultures, we, we don't have. Um, more, more often than not, I'm looked at as though I believe the world is flat. And there's no need for for what I believe because that would put me in a.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. are the guys who, who invite you to believe six impossible things before breakfast? <laughs> well, wow, that, that's, that's really not a very attractive. Message. So I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that the gospel is all about being attractive, but yes, um, I'm very much. I, I would very much affirm uh, that's the, the old Christmas gospel, so to speak. That the gospel does resonate with the desire of the nations. Yeah. Um, if if I'm, I'm very suspicious against some sort of, let's say, deeply conservative Christianity that says, as soon as people like what you say, it should be then it must be wrong. Uh, that's not possible. Uh, there must be, we're creatures, all, all of us, and, and, and it's impossible that people will never like what Christians say, so to speak. Yeah.
0: So in uh, in, fir- in first Timothy. Uh, Paul lays out his qualifications for, for an elder. Um, None of them would show up in a business leadership handbook. They're all familial. They're all character Um, building community building. Exactly. Right. So it, Paul also doesn't lay out. They need to be able to cast vision. They need to be able to, uh strategize plan uh, maybe the deacons should do that they're probably a little bit better at that administration bit but what so that that kind of it's something i've been pondering lately this is still very raw but i got a text from a friend who said hey look at this passage and i was like he said what do you see and i was like i don't uh you know this and he said you It's not leadership oriented. It's familial and community oriented. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, And that's something I've been processing through. I have a a degree in leadership, Christian leadership, which um, I think is, anyway, we won't go into my own cynicism on my own degree. Uh, Glad to have it, but uh, be that as it may. So what role? Sorry, this is very. I have I have a lot of I have a long runway to my questions here. <laughs> Stuff that is good. Uh, yeah. Go. So, so uh, one of the – Anyway, yeah. There you go. I guess what you're going. <laughs> what what role does strategy and planning need to play in everything that we do? When you go to a church conference or when you go to a big evangelical meeting, so many so many breakout sessions are. How to get more out of it? How to think strategically? Um, when I look at people's strength finders, when we we do strategic planning as an organization, I don't think that they're bad in and of themselves, but we put a lot of time and energy into those things. If if what we're saying is we're looking for markers that can't necessarily be be measured or shouldn't necessarily no. be measured, what what do we spend our time doing? And is it a fool's errand to spend on the strategy thing?
2: Well, I don't want to make any cheap shots against uh, all sort of leadership uh, theories and, and so on. I teach, I'll i
0: do it later uh, in the podcast, don't worry yeah, about it. Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: uh, I, 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 I even teach some leadership courses and, and with some restrictions, I, I can see there's certain usefulness in that. I mean, it, I don't think it's ever recommended in, in scripture or wherever. The Christians with some responsibility in the church should just do what they think and and, and and not not listen to reason or do not not employ any wisdom so to speak so i, I always see leadership theories or whatever sort of theories christians use uh, for example in rhetoric and preaching or, or psychology and in pastoral care um uh, and leadership theories in, in, in managing or leading the church they're sort of uh, in, German, in German, they would say Hilfwissenschaft, so the, the, the uh, ancillary disciplines, so to speak. And so um, um, I'm, I'm always thinking of Larry Norman here. Why should the devil have all good music? So mm-hmm. why should mm-hmm. Christians not use these this stuff? Um, and I, I, I tend to think of it in lines with uh, Old Testament wisdom, the, the, the Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, and so on. There's sort of general wisdom that we can use. So, to that extent, all fair and square. Um, when it comes to, to um but of course yeah there is a there is a risk when all this theory sort of becomes uh, a sort of silent takeover of of, of, of what's really happening in, in church um so so when you take think of, of the books you just mentioned cited to titus and, and and one timothy or two timothy about um uh, offices leadership in church um, in a way, of course, the, they are not asked to cast vision because that's, they knew already what a vision was. <laughs> uh, like I said, they, they had to embody that themselves, the reconciled community. Um, Paul was very clear about that. So he, 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 the selection criteria, so to speak, were based on that kind of, I wouldn't call it a vision, they were kingdom based, so in a sense, um, um, The risk with words like vision casting and so on is that we do it. And then we sort of Mm -hmm. think of our own vision. That's not Mm -hmm. true in church. So when I think of of leadership in church, I always tend to think of when our children were young, we sometimes needed a babysit when my wife and I would go out to a restaurant or whatever. Um, Now, I would say leadership in church is like being a babysitter of the church. The parents have not really left, but they've taken some distance. Um, now, a babysit I think would be quite wrong when he or she would say, well, I'll, I'll cast a completely different vision for this family uh, because mm-hmm. I thought of something. Now, of course not. You're just trying to do as faithful as possible what the parents have, have asked you to do. Um, so something like that. So, so uh, it helps me to think in my own role as, as a leader in church of, 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 that also is quite relaxing in a sense. I don't have to think of the vision. I, what I'm looking for what I'm trying to build is signs of community signs of reconciled community and 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 uh that of course that keeps that 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 gives you enough to keep you occupied for a lifetime I mean, that brings this is the human question basically uh so it's not just a churchy thing again like i said it, it it's also very easy to communicate to to non-christians what am i doing i'm, I'm trying to build community but i can tell you Community building is much more difficult than you think. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's why I need God. But, hmm. um, um, and that's why Jesus died somehow. Anyway, uh, so, so, um, <sighs> so what's leadership in these books? Well, it's probably modeling this kind of stuff in your family or in your own life, being able to ask for forgiveness if you wrong someone or being humble. Stuff like that I mean, it's mm. not rocket science uh it's it's not diff, it's not hard. it's not easy to do yeah um like i said it keeps you it keeps you occupied for a lifetime but it's, it's easy to write down
0: yeah philippians 2 was really easy to write down yeah less it?
2: less so to live out i can sing it and, and write it down yeah <laughs> that's right yeah well, that's, sure. that's where, where from at least I, I come from a Pietist tradition, so a tradition that's very vertical. Uh, Jesus should come in your heart. Uh, it's no use that Christ was born in Bethlehem; I mean, he should be born in your heart and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, mm-hmm. A very subjective, uh, deep sense of sin and of conversion, mm-hmm. and um, this this is the way I became a Christian. Uh, the, the kingdom message I, I discovered later in my life. And I've struggled with that a lot, how to keep that together because deep inside I sensed and also theologically I sensed that you can't you can't just throw it away. You can say pietism Mm. is all wrong. So to some extent I think focusing on this on this kingdom ideal of of reconciled community brings up again and again questions like conversion, for example, Mm -hmm. confession of sin, uh being completely, utterly dependent on Christ and His cross. Uh, but not just, not as a, metrop- as a sort of doctrinal idea, uh, which is very hard to explain in societies like, uh, why should I believe in Christ? Why should I believe that the, uh, He saved us on the cross? He saved us from, from what? Uh, I don't need salvation. Um, <coughs> uh, unless you'll find that you are, are embarked on a project, if that's the word, on a mission of building a reconciled community, then you'll find out that you'll need all this stuff. like that i mean at least that's what i try to to teach in my community my church and and, then to embody
1: yeah one of uh speaking of of reconciled communities what one of the um you know obviously you know we're all here because we're passionate to some degree about reaching europeans about europeans knowing jesus um and so, but we're also living in this time period of the global church where we have, uh, I mean, it's its 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 quite a incredible time to be alive in some sense because you have the churches really everywhere in, in most places in the world. And it's, you know, going all over the place and, you know, for the good side of that, the bad side of that, the, the complex side of that. Um, and so, you know, we, we have a tension in, in Spain where we have a lot of immigration. We have a lot of particularly South American immigrants. Uh, immigration and missionaries coming now which is right. which you know, on one hand is very exciting but on another hand creates a uh, you know a bit of a stress mm-hmm. in the sense that spaniards sometimes will see um the gospel as foreign or external uh, or the church is, is something although that's beginning to change we're starting to see second and third generation
2: okay.
1: people who've grown up so so i i I'm, mentioned I'm in, the, in the idea of that reconciling community and do you think there's something that's that maybe even god's doing or could be doing in that uh Maybe that could call more Europeans uh, to the yeah. church. or
2: uh,
1: I, 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 it's, it's something I'm still, you know, fighting with and struggling with, but...
2: Yeah, well, yeah, I find I, I, difficult for me to answer the question for your context, but I think yeah. this is one of the first tasks for a church planter or a missionary to find out, to think through, to reflect on, to pray through these kind of questions in his or her context. What does it mean to heal humanity? Mm-hmm to do, mm. reconcile people in my context. Yeah. So I, I can, when I speak about my context in, in Amsterdam, for example, part of the issue is, for example, um, left-wing and right-wing people. Mm. Uh, even within church, but also in society at large, you'll find deep rifts um, between people who are more right-wing, nationalistically oriented, and people who are progressives. And they, not just... They do not just take a distance from each other. They, they positively hate each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just in Europe, I think. It's in the United States as far as I can get. Uh, <laughs>
0: See, yeah. Seems to be the case. Seems to be the it the case, seems yes. to be the case. We get
2: some of this wins. Um, anyway, so so um, I think this is a huge challenge in societies like ours. How can people differ or, or even uh, being passionately different in terms of politics and still love each other? Mm-hmm. Um, how can I... Be dedicated to, for example, um, uh, a, a righteous society, um, climate change policy, and all that, and still love my brothers or even non-brothers. I mean, non who are deeply opposed to that and, and who spread fake news in my in my opinion and so on. So, so how to from from let's say from an idealistic or progressive perspective, you could say, how can can you be Sort of idealist and progressive without looking down on those who are not, <laughs> without losing your love. Because I think that's the first and last task for every Christian to love your neighbor and even your enemies. Now, this is a lifetime task already, but yeah. I think still, some, again, something that resonates with larger parts and segments of our societies, even if people are not Christians, isn't it? Yeah, in one way or another, we can't gone like this forever yeah. um so so um I, i'm always thinking of, of of the book of jonah here jonah was a, a righteous prophet who fought for a righteous cause i mean nineveh was really a very bad city a very bad place yeah their iniquities had risen up to god that's what the first first says so jonah was in it. i mean he, he was a, the member of a righteous people going to a very unrighteous place to to the problem is he was too glad to do it (laughs) um so so how can you identify with a righteous cause without hating those Mm. who are opposite uh, who are your opponents so so these are very deep questions we can't solve them in just a few minutes here but i'm just pointing them out i think um there is something in this for everyone that's my point i think uh, not just for the bad people, but also maybe, especially so for the good people. Yeah,
0: there there is a, um, a theologian, uh, Korean American theologian uh, Andrew Sung Park, who wrote a book called *Triune Atonement*, in which he kind of—I'm not sure that I fully agree with everything in it—but one of the things he takes is the the Korean concept of something called *han* which is this idea that it's basically sin, but it's basically the rift that comes in between people of both the oppressor and the oppressed or the right. the sinner and the sinned. Um, it, it, it basically is the, the sense of loss that someone feels when something is stolen from them, but then the burden that that person who stole it carries. And what he proposes is that the atonement of Christ pays for the han that it takes both aspects of that on it not just it takes the the person who's been sinned against and it takes their hurt but it also takes the responsibility of the person and right. so seeing 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 the cross in that way is something that can step into that fray it's something that speaks to both the conservative and the progressive the left and the right the right. It, it, it's something but uh, if you're holding on to that progressive or, or conservative side too tightly, you, you lose the aspect of the cross because then the cross becomes something with which to, I don't know, wield against others rather than speak directly to you.
2: Yes, true, true. So how to keep together the cross and the kingdom, basically. Yeah. That's a question here. Um, yeah. and, and so my, my, my point would be to return to our first question, Sir Barrett and, 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 and Gary. Um, um, I think Focusing on on these kind of issues will also help us to think missionally or to mm-hmm. become missionaries again. Because one of the one of the problems for many, let's say, evangelicals or more traditional Protestants in, in mission in, in secular countries is that they are bothered. They they occupy their minds constantly with questions like, how can I get people to believe in things that they do not really find believable at all. Uh, so then you are deeply into apologetics and trying to convince people and so on but in the end you try to convince them of things that do not really seem to play a part in their daily lives or in their societies mission and that's what I learned from my African friends is deeply involved with the questions of society and and, and the the sufferings of people and and, and the joys of people so um, what we're discussing here in this brief podcast now and it's far too short and we should do this more often but my point is, I think what we try to do here is to think through the questions of cross and kingdom, cross and resurrection and kingdom, um, in connection with the deep questions of society, Western mm-hmm. society, which I think nowadays uh, revolve around these deep issues of polarization that is increasingly uh, a, prob- a problem dr- driving us apart, and um, which is, is really something that concerns a lot of people. And I'm not saying that that the gospel, that there will be the wrong things to to say. I'm not saying that the gospel is basically sort of answer to questions we have. Sort of, you can plug them into the holes that we have. That's not the point. It's more of a dialectic relationship. Of course, the gospel has much more to to say than just this. But for now, in our context, the most contextual message message could be this. Uh, Whereas, for example, in the age of revivals, when people became individuals and democratized and so on, uh different aspects of the gospel became highlighted uh for now it might be the the reconciliatory dimensions Mm -hmm. of the gospel Mm -hmm. i would say um come to the forefront
1: yeah i think it's something you 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 explain well is that and and uh, i'm seeing clear here is the idea that you know missions is an art because it's 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 local it's contextual it it's not you know it doesn't have to be the same thing throughout 2000 years of, no. of history and it can't be. And it simply, it simply hasn't. There's the, there's certain core values, you know, which we can find in the new Testament and Jesus right. that, you know, yeah. we don't abandon, but in a sense it is, this is, and it, it requires maybe more artists, th- people with, with that kind of creativity than it would say a, you know, a typical, you know, by the book, which evangelicalism has always tended to be very, not always, but, you know, we tend to be very by-the-book kind of... Here's the method, here's the, here's, yeah, the yeah.
2: way. Yeah, evangelicalism, I mean, evangelicals usually do not like to hear that. It's actually quite a modern Christian movement. Yeah, okay. It originated in the 1780s, so to speak. So, so uh, it's not that old. <laughs> yeah. and, and evangelicals like to think that uh, Adam and Eve already were evangelicals, but <laughs> uh, it's not like that. So it's a, it's a movement very much rooted in early democrat, democratic... Uh, uh, societies, individualization, uh, emancipation of, of of minorities, and so on. so there is a sort of uh, empowerment of the of the individual. If you if you read through the uh, for the books of, of Babington, Dubbing, for example, about okay. the, the early ones, you can see a lot of assurance and so on. So that, and that, that was a, I think that was the gospel for these societies very much so. Uh, I mean, in every context, Christians missionaries need to ask this question: What does it mean to? To witness about the gospel in my context. Well, I think they did a good job then, but we're in a very different context now, a context mm-hmm. where societies are drifting apart and polarizing uh, so, their coherence. A,
0: a lot of what we've talked about has been kind of this idea of exile or pilgrim that comes forth in your book, but there's also the aspect of becoming priests. How and and these two th- ideas have been incredibly helpful for for me. Um, both Garrick and I uh, have a dear affection for the Camino de Santiago. So p- the the idea of pilgrimage and walking with people and doing things with them, oh. I think, is an incredible idea for how we do mission. And and I it, not for you, but for those who are listening, I want to draw the distinction between the mission and evangelism here because oftentimes evangelism becomes a means to an end rather than mission is just what we're caught up in doing along the way that we go. But can you speak a little bit to the idea of how are we out of Peter called to be priests in the world that we live in? And how do you think that that is helpful for the, for the cultural moment that we're in?
2: Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, Um, Let me try um so so the book is called pilgrims and priests so we we basically talked about the first part pilgrims uh, let's say becoming exiles losing power losing control of culture or others are calling the shots and so on and the the pilgrim part of the the priest part is basically saying but this should not encourage us to withdraw from society to turn our backs to society Mm. uh, or to become christians who are presenting themselves out of a sort of resentment to society, mm-hmm. culture war kind of stuff um, so the priest part is basically um, saying uh, how can you still serve society be missionaries, now the priest uh, the priest metaphor has become very dear to me um, when I look through all the scriptural passages about exile and, and diaspora and, and also the New Testament and especially when you look in the first letter of, of, of Peter when he talks about the Christian churches in diaspora as um, a priestly communities, you're a kingdom of priests he says, or a royal priesthood uh, different mm-hmm. translations essentially the same thing. Now, thinking through the, the 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 identity of the Christian community as being a priesthood helps me to 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 think through the the missionary relationship of the church with with with, with society. So, uh, what priests? What did they do in the Bible, or probably in any culture, but at least in the Old Testament? Well, you can see um, they sort of mediate between God and people, God in their context, God in the neighbourhood the village, the city, the country. Um, How do they mediate? Well, they represent God to the people. How do they do that? By teaching. Uh, The priests in the Bible instruct. They teach the Torah. Um, And by blessing people. They bless. That's what they do. They bless and teach. Mm. And they represent the people to God. They are chosen out of the people as a minority, by definition. That's one of the interesting elements of priesthood, you are a minority by definition, but they represent the people, the neighborhood, the world, the country, and so on, to God. And what do priests do? Again, two things when they represent the, the, the people to God. They um, sacrifice. So the best of their culture they bring to God. We um, can think through what it means today in terms of art or effort, whatever. And they worship. They glorify God. And... Um, so um, I think these four elements of um, uh, on the one hand teaching and blessing and on the other hand worshiping and sacrificing help me to to think through the whole spectrum, so to speak, of what it means to be a missional community in, in the West today. And without going into detail, I'd say um, for any community that would help. How can we be the priesthood of our neighborhood? Mm-hmm. Well, basically, um, it means to have... Uh, to also develop a sort of identity that you can praise God and sacrifice God on behalf of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, that also gets us away from a church growth driven model in which each and everyone um, um, is sort of individual needs to be individually before God in order to worship him or, uh, God. Because what you can see in the Bible, uh, and I think this is something we need to learn as Westerners, is again, this communal vision, much more than, than we have developed it. Uh, when we, for example, let, let me just an example. Think of the book of Job, Job chapter 1, where Job is pictured as a righteous man. And one of the reasons why he's righteous is that he, uh, every evening, he brings sacrifice, he offers sacrifice for all, on behalf of all his children. Because, he says, they may have sinned without knowing mm-hmm. so Let me sacrifice it, And and. It's very interesting well, but you could say that's old testament that's semitic culture and so on we're different well in the new testament you find the same thing in one corinthians chapter seven when the corinthians write to the apostle paul about marriage one of the questions they they ask paul is um what uh, if a christian is married to a non-christian should they divorce should they separate and then paul says no because the non-christian partner is sanctified in the mm. christian partner, and also your children are holy now I think this makes very little sense from an individualistic paradigm.
0: Yeah. Yep.
2: And and that's one of the reasons why many Protestants cannot make sense of this text. But yep. what I what I think, what Paul says there is, to some extent, I mean, without going into all the depths of the mysteries of salvation, but, but, but to, in a very simple level, on a very basic level, I think that's encouraging for every missionary, or for every Christian even, uh, if you're the only one in your street or the only one in your family, um, you, you, through you, God sort of blesses uh, the community you're part of. Those people you are linked to in love and, 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 and all sorts of ties you have from friendship. Now, coming back to the priesthood, I'd say priests are people who build friendships, who build relationships. And through these relationships and through the friendship, they may believe, they are allowed to believe, the scripture tells them so, that all their friends and family members and and, and the, the people in the street, are blessed through them. So this, uh, in a way, also means that every conversation you have, every act of service, every way of connecting with people, um, is, even if people not become, don't become Christians, and usually they don't, is still a, a channel of salvation, so to speak. Now, you uh, need to work this out in more detail and so on. In the book there is more about this, but I'm just sketching the main picture here. Right. And so i think to be a priesthood is to to believe to be utterly convinced um and i think we can you can be on, on the basis of scripture that um being a minority um that this this particular minority has an impact that is much 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 bigger than it uh, ever dares to believe mm-hmm. uh, if it takes seriously that the gospel that, that the bible thinks in communities mm-hmm. in relationships this is something we can also learn from the non from the non Western church, by the way. No. it's a different yeah, um, yeah. This yep. is very much a Western problem, a <laughs> Western Protestant problem. I might add.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interestingly, Bono sings in a song by you two, "Blessings uh, not just for the ones who kneel." Luck, luckily, that's what he's you know. So that this idea that there is a what is done in the name of Jesus has a much and which I you know, much bigger, much more universal um, impact. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think you're right. We you know, this this is another thing for me in the book that was very powerful was because you, you read that the the first Peter chapter about a royal priesthood, but I think we always, especially as an American, we tend to what truncate that into that, well, that means I have access to Jesus. And that's kind of it becomes a very personalized, very one on one which which is part of that that conversation. Yeah. But we miss the we miss the wider scope of what being a priest really is, but, which is again,
2: I mean The way Luther, for example, uh, interpreted um, this particular notion of the priesthood was indeed uh, to have access to God, unmediated access, Mm -hmm. without bishops, popes, and so on, which I think made a lot of sense in his context. Yeah, Yeah. It was a very contextual gospel. But again, in our atomized societies, Mm -hmm. when individualism um, has become rampant, um, I think we need different accents. And Christianity, especially part of Christianity, has become of this modern individualistic culture in a much deeper way than we care to believe. And here, I think the gospel also cuts in our own flesh because it's hard to make sense of texts that Paul so offhandedly writes and well, his children are holy as well. Mm-hmm. Because one yes. of the parents is a question. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How can that be? Yeah, apparently it can be. I, I, I
0: shouldn't say that everyone should be a missionary or, or do or live in the middle east uh or in central asia or north africa but it was helpful in that regard when i lived there to read the bible with new lenses because everything was not every but there was so much more familial aspect so i'll never forget my friend who had just been disowned by his father for becoming a believer when he was reading i have i have more family and he thought Mm -hmm. yeah i know who my family is now and he went to the church Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, and, and so th- that means something, but to an atomized Western individualist, it, it, it it's hard to grasp because you don't see it with those lenses. And so having yeah. those dissonant voices are, are helpful.
2: Yeah, and, and uh, probably this, this wouldn't be a message I would proclaim in, let's say, South Korea which probably right. is much too collective for yeah, my it, case at least. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a very contextualized message for, for Western society. That I, I want to, to to repeat that and to reiterate that. Um, but yeah, the role of the church in, in, in our Western post-Christian societies, I think is being a minority, at least for the foreseeable future, I don't see much change in that, probably will be coming even smaller. Um, but I would say the priesthood minority, on the one hand, believes that God is involved in secularization of our cultures. He has not ab- abandoned us. Um, and, and a community that, despite its size, has much more impact than it cares to believe. Uh, if only it would abandon its individualistic mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also a community that hopefully builds signs of reconciled humanity, or that contributes to reconciled neighborhoods, um, and all that, and 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 within this context, also testifies to Christ whenever uh, the opportunity uh, presents itself. Um, because in this post-Christian society, of course, lots of intuitions, free-floating beliefs, and so on, are going on that are still uh, very familiar, very related to the gospel. <laughs> mm-hmm. So maybe we're also maybe the church. In the future, will also be some of something of, of the collective memory of, of, of storehouse of memory, of Western mm-hmm. societies could be. Mm-hmm. As as uh, Peter
0: Hitchens used to remark about his brother Christopher Hitchens, he forgets whose shoulder he's shoulders. He stands on. Right. Uh, the, there's there's truth to that. Um, I, it, all this is reminding me. I I I want to ask about your thoughts on COVID and the situation as far as the church's, the role that we have to play. There there seems to be. I'm not sure I'm going to do it, but there, there I'll set us up for another podcast. There seems to be a sense from a lot of people that, okay, this is the revival moment we've been waiting for a lot of, a lot of hope in that. And it seems to me that we're going back to the same horses and chariots um, that, that we're putting our trust in. I I, I have nothing against revival in and of itself. I, I, I want revival. I want to see that, but where I'm going with this, is, I was recently reading the, the, um, the last battle c.s lewis's last book of the line which in the wardrobe to my children and that book does not end the way i as an american want it to end in the sense of in this life i want to see the last battle aslan comes in he destroys everybody then he goes okay guys now we go into my kingdom and it actually ends with the king and everyone else saying well if we die aslan's still faithful Mm. And it seems to me that's everything I need to know as a missionary. I may be standing with my back against the the rocks. I may be watching everything come crashing down. There's just the remnant. I watch my friends pass, but in the end, I'm with Aslan. I'm 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 there, and and he he remains faithful, uh, and he remains good. And that seems to be the. And so I, I anyway. So I won't have you but, go into the COVID world. things, but yeah, not in our world, right? It's not our
2: world. Yeah. It's his world. And so
0: but but we we have something we see through a me, a mirror yet dimly. Sure. And and that's what we're looking for. So I love that idea that you've talked about today of of four tastes that we have that we are that we are the proclaimers of foretastes uh, of the kingdom to come that we look forward to that and that that we hold out for his faithful reappearance and his faithful ushering in of his final kingdom. Um So we've kept you way too long, um, but we are—it's—it's been fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We would love to. I'd love it if we could do it again sometime, and we'll delve deeper into some of these things. But uh, we just thank you so much.
1: Yes, thank you very much. I think this will be a real blessing for a lot of ministry. Thank you with this podcast, obviously.
0: Yeah, everybody out there in the uh, interwebs, uh, go out, do yourself a favor. If you are in ministry or you are a believer in Jesus, uh, go and and get Pilgrims and Priests by Stefan Pass. Yeah, Uh,
1: and and Church Planning in the Secular West, Learning from the European Experience. Also an excellent, excellent
0: book. Both equally good books. Uh, So, but anyway, do yourself a favor, go get that and uh, read it and be changed and follow Jesus. Guys, I am going to go do my Swedish afternoon coffee thing, but it was a pleasure to get to talk to both of you.
1: Thank you, Stefan.
0: Thanks. Thank Thank you. you, Stefan.